Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to the conversations that could. I'm Dermot Brereton. This is a show where we talk to people from across the sporting landscape and discuss issues surrounding mental health, the struggles, the successes and ways in which we can all support each other through the challenges that life presents. Our guest tonight is a sports psychologist and a performance coach. He has worked with Olympic swimmers, track and field athletes, AFL footballers and umpires during his career. He's drawing on much of that experience in his new book, The Performance Mindset. Seven Steps to Success in Sport and Life. Anthony Clarica, welcome to the conversations that could for Are You OK? Thanks so much for having me, Dermot. I've uh, had a flick through the book and I've read up a, a, a deal about you. You're well-travelled throughout the sporting universe. You could say I've been around the block. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yes, I've, I've yeah, loved sport. One of the things I loved about sport, Derm, was sport from a very long time ago actually focuses a lot on prevention. Mm. And, you know, I think – and when people talk about athletes being role models, it's just that important because within an AFL club, for example, all the players are getting education and working in that wellbeing space on a constant basis in a preventative way. Yeah. And society's only just catching up to that now. Which we – Never used to. AFL players used to be, it was how good you could perform on the weekend, mm. whatever you did in between, how you got there, that was left to you, wasn't it? it very much so. But uh, it's much more of a focus on the whole person now, which I think is absolutely so relevant. We need to put person first and understand that the athlete comes second. Yeah. That helps performance, but more importantly, it actually helps the person and the people. And this is applicable in life and business. You, you do work and dealings with organisations, companies, groups, you go in and handle seminars and you, you take companies and their employees and and uh, make them better. Absolutely. And, and, and in education as well. I really like the fact that at the moment schools, probably COVID's put a spotlight on a lot of this for us, but schools, schools are being a lot more proactive in what we call social, emotional learning and education. Yeah. And they're proactively building skills for young people that end up lasting them for life. Yeah. And and companies are doing that as well. Obviously, it's with adults. But people feel supported. That's a big part of it, term. But but in reality, they're building skills. And I, I'm all about skill building. When people recognize and appreciate that, you can learn how to think better, learn how to interact with people better, learn how to be a bit more resilient when natural challenges and hiccups come along, because they will. They're inevitable for mm. everybody. If you can build some skill in that space and you appreciate that and you start prioritizing it, you're going you're gonna to travel along the way better. So the earlier we can educate people on that's great. And that's why sport's so good because a lot of athletes are young people. So love building skill and getting people to appreciate and recognize that they can do that. It's really empowering. So you've, you've, you're incredibly well-traveled. You've, as your book, The Performance Mindset, indicates just inside the front over here, there is a host of elite athletes you've spoken to yeah, and you've learnt and, and it's almost like you're the, the hub. You've taken bits from all of them and you've learnt in, in various areas about, gee, from aerial skiers, swimmers, Aussie rules, as you've caught, soccer, 
motorsport, which, I, well, it is high octane, but yeah. it's, you're dealing with your life every time you go out there. These high-performance athletes, are they, is it natural? Are they born or are they made or, or is there a combination of the two? What, what makes somebody get to that? Because there are a lot of people with talent who don't make it. Yeah, well, it, the first section of the book is actually called Made Not Born. And in, in there, I, I put forward the premise that mindset's the foundation. Once you've, once you've got an established mindset, you prioritise and work on that. That enables you to do the work and that work enables you to capitalise on the talent. So, Dave, if I can just interject there. So there'll be somebody driving home right now and they'll be going, mindset. Yeah, I've heard that word before, mm. mindset. Can you drill into it a bit for us? So there's a 21-year-old boy who's on the way to footy training tonight. And he'll be thinking, mindset, what does my mindset have to be? What does that look like? What does that, how does that interpret to him? Yeah, it's, go back to that word skills. It's how well you can think and manage your own thinking and the things around you as well. So your mindset relates to, as I said, how you think, but that could be concepts like resilience, like motivation. And and people think high-performing athletes are always motivated. That's not true. You can build skills to manage your motivation. So when it dips, which happens to everybody, whether you're a top athlete or a developing athlete or you're in transition, whatever it is, whatever stage of life, motivation is not constant. You know, it, it, it ebbs and flows. So you can build skills for how you think, how you use your resources around you, for how you manage people, how you communicate. Resilience is another section in the book we talk about that. Uh, for how you lead yourself, how you manage leadership, uh, how you manage your well-being, and then how you cope with perform- with the performance stage. So they're, you, they're all parts of mindset. You, you made mention that it's not a constant flow, you know. Do, do, you, do you have – you'd have to have the shut-off times. I mean, those high-achieving athletes have to have a moment where they go, whew, settle, and just take the heat out of it, wouldn't they? I sometimes say, and a few of the athletes noted it in, in the interviews as well, the day off is sometimes the most important day in the training program. But you get compelled because you want to keep doing more and more and more, but that can lead to burnout and fatigue, not just physically, but mentally as well. Yeah. So if you want to sustain a, a, a performance or, or your commitment to a journey, you do need to catch your breath exactly as you're saying, Derm. So you need to, you need to know what works for you and you need to know your triggers to settle down and take that breath and take a break before you get exhausted. We, we see too many young athletes run themselves into the ground because they're often doing more than just their sport, right? Yeah. Not many people have the privilege of only being a full-time athlete that sustains or provides an income. Most athletes, um, probably listening today around Australia, they've got what we call dual careers. They're either working part-time to support their sport. If you're an Olympic athlete, that's pretty common. Or they're actually studying to try to make a life as well as their sport. Post-sport. Post-sport. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's very demanding. So you've, you've got to manage. This is part of mindset, coming back to that earlier question. You've got to be able to have the skills to manage all of that as you go in a preventative, proactive way. And that, that helps you stay on the track. I'd imagine you, you played footy as a, as a youngster yourself. and <laughs> yeah. Uh, so where does the fascination for, for you, the, the psychology of sport, where does that come from? It comes, it comes from uh, being active as, and I think activity and 
being being proactive in that space, as we were saying, uh, co- combined that act being active with people. People have got a lot of power within them, and I think a lot of people don't recognise that. So my interest in psychology has come with comes along with, I suppose, helping people maximise themselves as individuals as well as their sporting performance. And the two things fit together. Yeah. Was it always your passion? Like when you were at school, did you lean towards this, the, the gaining knowledge of the of psychology of sports people, or did it just... Did no, it I didn't. Just, no. No. How did you stumble upon it and say, hey, I'm actually not bad at identifying this? Well, it's a, it's a thing that you... I don't know that I ever said I'm not bad at identifying this, to be honest. <laughs> it's okay. it's I, something you that's learn. That's my words, yeah, yeah, okay. It's okay. something you learn along the way and you, you build as a, as, a, as a skill and you, you get educated in it and, and the more experience you have and you learn from others. And you actually, to be honest, once you start working, you learn from the people you work with. Mm. That, that's what I found. And most people who work with high performers, I think, are pretty open-minded and you, you grow collectively. Um. But my, my interest was from being active myself and then trying to refine down what, what would I like to do. And I knew that I didn't want to be tied behind a desk, but I wanted to do something in the physical activity space, something working with people and probably something that tapped into people's capacity. And that's, that's combined to be psychology ultimately. And the, and the area of motivated, those who are motivated, that... Is, is that, does that stand alone from the psychology of it or is it all intertwined here? I'm trying to get to, uh, and as I made mention, there'll be people, plenty of people everywhere. They'll be going to their basketball games tonight. They'll be going to their footy games. They've already got their job and their work and they want to do well. And, and, and I believe sport is, it reflects what you are under pressure, you can see somebody's personality when they are participating in in sport. Is that a fair comment? It's a good. I think it's a. I think it's a fair comment. However, we just need to keep in mind with that comment that people can build skill and capacity to shift how they do cope under those pressure or under the cauldron or heat of battle. Uh, that's something that you can grow and evolve. It's not just a fixed thing. It's something that people learn and evolve with. And there's lots of examples of that where people uh, grow in that space. So the the weekend warrior who plays at the local club, as compared to the elite sportsman, are the motivations different? Depends on your priorities. I I think there's, there's an, they are different, but there is an overlap. You know, and the overlap probably comes from just wanting to either do something that you're enjoying, wanting to excel, whatever level that is. You know, you might be a weekend warrior and uh, you'd like your team to win. That's not different than being an AFL player and wanting your team to win as well. You're just, you're just exhibiting that in a, different, in a different forum. So, yeah, and on the motivation point, it, as I said before, it does ebb and flow and people need to manage their own internal motivation but appreciate that goes up and down. Good athletes who are skilled in mindset, they also manage all the external factors around them that help them stay motivated. Yeah. They don't just rely on themselves. And that's what people think, but it's not true, Dan. Yeah. I, I, he won't mind me saying this, but Nathan Buckley is one of the most interesting characters I've ever encountered. Now, I played one year with him 
He had to win the two warm-up laps. He had to win any contest. And in fact, when he was at, uh, well, recently at Collingwood, he would go down to, he's motivated to win everything. They would have their soccer games down at Albert Park. And he turned up on like game two with a game plan and told everybody they had to be there early. And it's a social game. He just could not fathom the fact that, hey, they might lose. (laughs) And it's a social game. Is that? I mean, that's motivation, but that's inbred. Is it inbred or is it just inherited? Is it just locked in that he had to win? It sounds, sounds pretty driven to me, but, but after all of his years of playing, if he was, you know, if that way as a coach, he probably had the habit of that as well. Yeah. yeah. And uh, once something's a habit, you, you need to, to change a habit or shift, shift that. You need to have a bit more conscious thinking and think, well, how important is this right now? Um, so yeah, I, no doubt that sounds like a pretty driven character, um, but you'd, I suppose the skill there is to manage when and how to temper that and to apply it to certain circumstances. Not talking about Bucks, talking about anyone here. Oh, he's, he's um, a ripper. He's hilarious with it too. He just shakes his head at himself as well, so he can yeah. have a laugh at himself yeah. as well. Well, I'm getting more of a feeling for you now. We're going to have a break, but on the other side, I'm going to ask you about some of the people that you've studied and spoken with in the book, The Performance Mindset. This is The Conversations That Could for Are You OK, brought to you by Dare Iced Coffee. Dare Iced Coffee, a proud partner of Are You OK? More with Anthony in a moment. The Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask Are You OK? Welcome back to the Conversations That Could. I'm Dermot Brereton and our guest tonight is Anthony Clarica, sports psychologist, performance coach turned author. Anthony's new book, The Performance Mindset, Seven Steps to Success. That's a bit of a tongue twister. It is a tongue twister. <laughs> In Sport and Life has just hit all the good bookstores. Now, the book includes candid, in-depth interviews and stories from a wide variety of Australian athletes. Now, you've gone for a real cross-section here, mm. Anthony. I'm, I'm looking at some of the names here. Uh, Jackie Cooper, aerial skier. What stands out about Jackie in the way, she, apart from being bloody mad the way those <laughs> aerial skiers go, what stands out for Jackie? Well, Jackie, Jackie described herself as not necessarily having athletic talent, which is fascinating because she was the first Australian female to make five Olympic games. Yeah. She described herself as having energy and she just directed or happened to direct that energy into sport. And, and she had injuries that lasted for two and a half years. Is it important to actually identify like the, the energy as opposed to talent, the, you know, sporting talent? Is it important to actually... Self-assess? Uh, absolutely, yeah. And she recognised that she had more energy than talent. So she, she used that to her advantage. She thought, yeah, if I can direct my energy effectively, don't worry about the talent. I'll be able to grow if I continue directing my energy effectively. And that's, that's what she did. For example, um, she says when she was 16, she had no resilience. She said she was young, immature. Who can really expect a 16-year-old to be super resilient? And I think some people demand that of kids. Yep. And I don't think that's fair, to be honest. She says she developed resilience over time from all of her experiences and skills from people she worked with. Were they in the ski field or were they just life experiences? Both. Yep. Yeah. She describes both. 
Um, but one of the things that she says that, that she actually did to help her direct her energy was she, she had a note uh, that had 10 things on it and she read it, uh, or she had a note, she read it 10 times a day for 10 years. That, that's where she directed her energy. and that, that She wrote her. the note? No, a coach wrote that note with her when she was just starting out. And as she said, she didn't have much talent, but she directed her energy into the things on that note. She directed her energy into, into learning, into a passion for skiing that evolved and grew. And that helped her to cope with all the ups and downs, as you said, because there's a lot of crashes in aerial skiing, which she describes. Oh, it's terrifying. It's, it's bloody, when you stand side onto them, it's terrifying. You just, you know they're going to make it, but you're terrified that they're not. It is harrowing to be there. They're, they're incredible. Can I ask, what are some of the, the, the items that were in those? I didn't, I didn't describe the items in, in the book. There were more, I think the, the list was more something just to keep her on track. Yeah. That's, that's what it was about. And uh, she knew that she needed a resource or something to reflect upon to help keep her on track and guide her. And that's brilliant because she had a template that she used and worked for, for her mindset. Yeah. And a lot of people don't think that they have or should have a template. Uh, but I often say to, suggest to people, what, what values are driving you or what, what skills are you working on? How often do you reflect on them? So it was a great story from Jackie about that strategy she used because it, I think it applies. To, you might not read something 10 times a day. For 10 years, yeah, you know, that's, that's extreme. But you might have something that you reflect on every week to keep you on track. And good evening to Jack. She'll probably be listening. She's a lovely <laughs> girl. She's a ripper. Uh, okay, now another one that fascinated me, uh, and, and we all look at sportsmen and think, right, they, they go out and they perform their best and they just do to their best. And if their best is good enough, they can't ask anything more of themselves. And that sounds true and it rings true. Coaches will always say, just give me your best and if we fall short, we'll wear it. Not so Scotty Draper. He's different to actually – it's almost like from what I've learnt from you and your de description of him, his mindset, he would play games with his mind and where he would position it in contest. Tell mm. us a little bit about Scotty Draper, the tennis player. Well, Scott is remarkable, uh, not just for what he did with his tennis, but, but he actually became a professional golfer as well. Yep. And one of the interesting things there is that he used the mental skills that he learned from tennis and just transitioned them across to golf. And sometimes people ask me, are the mindset skills for one sport totally different from another? And there are obviously some differences and yeah. specificity, you know, specific things, but I think Scott's story, an example from two different sports, shows that, that a lot of the skills are transferable. And that's really important for people to recognise. Skills for sport are transferable into life. That's, that's why we love sport. Yeah. And if you, if you focus on building your life and yourself as a person, you can transition those into sport. Anyway, Scott, one of the things about Scott, as you're talking about, um, he, 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 play, he described that he was playing some low-level tournaments in New South Wales and lost three tournaments in a row easily. And he, and he stopped and reflected on that. So the art of reflection is really important too. Yep. You need to reflect. And he reflected with some good people he had in his corner. And they said, listen, you're not heading down the right path. And he recognised that he had to stop getting caught up in the win-lose and start just loving competition. 
And he says he learned to embrace competition and all the emotions that came with it, the highs and the lows, and not try to fight off the lows and only look for highs. That used to break him down. Yeah. So you embrace those. And he says that that taught him to fall in love with not just all the emotions, but the problem-solving part of it and to feel less vulnerable when the spotlight was on him when he was competing. So an example of how he used that eventually, he, he moved on after he had this mindset and started applying it in practice he ended up winning 42 matches in a row that took him right up to the Japan Open and he ended up competing against Andre Agassi, which he said he never, ever could have imagined with his old mindset where he lost these three low-level tournaments. Anyway, he uh, described as well that he uh, had a match in uh, Italy on clay in the Italian Open against a guy at the time who was known as the king of clay. The lefty. Musta. Musta. Well done, dude. <laughs> yeah. And uh, obviously before Nadal, he was he was known as the king of clay. And uh, he'd been a world number one as well. And Scott was drawn to play him. And he thought, how, how am I going to tackle this bloke? He's been well, undefeated Musta, for years. Musta was the type of bloke, if you came to the net, he'd drive it at you and try and hit you too. He, oh. he was take no prisoners style. Tennis player, wasn't he? Take no prisoners, you know, and and a lovely person as well from yeah. all descriptions. Well, that's his I, I competitiveness. His yeah. competitiveness he brought to battle. Anyway, Scott says he's drawn to play Muster. And as he was telling me the story, he said he decided not to make that match about winning on the scoreline. Because he Which is difficult. <laughs> which is difficult, but he from what he learned, he prided himself, and I suppose it's a bit of the Aussie spirit as well, he prided himself on being a competitor. So he says, right, he says to himself before the match, right, I'm going to try to beat Muster in his own game. I'm going to be the best competitor today out of the two of us. Out-tough him. Out-tough him is exactly how he put it. And the match went for hours and he beat him. He was the first person to beat him in several years. And he says the only way that he beat him was to really let go of the score but think about the character and what he was actually striving for in that match. That enabled him to win. So in theory, the first time he looks up on the board is the end of the match. <laughs> well. <laughs> in theory. In theory. I'm yeah. sure it wasn't. But, no. uh, but he decided to make it a difference. A competition within a competition, you might call it. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I marvel at that yeah. because it, it actually, he goes somewhere else out on the court. You know, you go out there and you're playing a sport. Yeah, this mm. is this point mm. will win. That point will will. Yeah, we we all come at each other, but he's gone somewhere else emotionally and mentally, and the end result will take care of itself. Yeah, yeah, to enable the performance. And he was well skilled at that, which I think helped him. You've got some interviews and that you took place with uh, some of the motorsports um, champions. Mm. Yeah, Garth Tander, um, who's a you know. Uh, V8 Supercar Championship winner and a Bathurst Bathurst winner. Yep. Different teams and different different partners. And he described uh, he described how his mindset really evolved and grew over time. You know, he struggled early in his career, and he says he used to get frustrated constantly with errors and and insecurity too, not having the security of a contract. Just being a uh, at one stage early in his career, he only had a round by round deal didn't have the security. And he said, therefore, he was constantly chasing a performance to try to get some security. Yep. And of course, it ended up working against him. He said he made mistake after mistake. And that that really used to frustrate him. 
And then the frustration led to further errors and underperforming. So when he started to work this out, again, with the support of others, when he started to work this out, he started building a few mindset strategies and, and he says it paid him back uh, later in his career when he was racing at Bathurst and he was leading with a small number of laps to go and Craig Lowndes was catching him. And uh, he's driving down uh, the back of Bathurst, which is 300 kilometres an hour, the fastest bit of tarmac in yep. Australian motorsport. You're driving that fast in a competitive environment right at the end of Bathurst, which is all day. So you're fatigued physically as well as mentally and you've got to concentrate. And he says he tried to push to break lounge. And in that effort to push, he made an error. Luckily, he held the car on the track, but lounge closed up even further and was just centimetres away from his bumper bar. And how he handled that situation, he says he, he used the skills that he'd learned from turning around his frustration when he was younger. And he said to himself, eyes forward, don't make another error, focus on what you need to do. And he held him off for a small number of laps and won Bathurst by less than a second. And he says that only happened because of the mindset skills he built. Because what he'd been through earlier. Yeah. It's got to be tough on a fellow who feels like this is my livelihood and it's only for this race. Mm. I don't know what happens. If it doesn't go well, I don't know where I, how I keep the lights on next week if I don't get another race contract. Yeah, it's, it's really challenging. And, and I suppose an extension of that is a lot of athletes build their whole identity around their sport. And, and that's understandable because it's everything they do and it's their makeup, but that does become dangerous uh, if all of your identity is tied up in your sport. And that's why we talk to a lot of athletes about building their identity beyond their sport because that'll end up helping them perform. But if you only see yourself as an athlete, then you feel that pressure even more intensely, I think, which becomes counterproductive. Yeah. I'm Dermot Brereton, and our guest is Anthony Clarica. This is The Conversations That Could for Are You OK, brought to you by Dare Iced Coffee. Dare Iced Coffee, a proud partner of Are You OK? More with Anthony in a moment. The Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Welcome back to the conversations that could for Are You Okay? I'm Dermot Brereton and my guest tonight is Anthony Clarica, acclaimed psychologist and performance coach. So your book has many, many elements to it. Some of it is on wellness, mind wellness. How does a sports psychologist... Uh, venture into this area or is it just a natural path that you end up traveling? It's a natural path because the, the performance, pure performance side of psychology is fairly new in, in reality. And most uh, psychologists are well trained in working with people issues as well as performance. And of course, if you're not, then you need to get the right people to help individuals personally or with their well-being, as we say. But but well-being and performance are absolutely integrated. They they don't they're not just stand alone. They overlap. Yeah. Um, so I think it is important for people working in performance to understand well-being and understand the whole person, and not just purely focus on performance. 
of late, and people do it to me and they're, they're welcome to do it, we, we hear this and people are saying, the, the, the catch cry of the show, are you okay? People mm. actually ask that. Is there a way to get that across without being too uh, formulated in the, in the question? Uh, is there a way to actually broach that with people and 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 ask them, yeah, is everything going okay? Can I help in any way, shape or form? It starts with relationship. If you've got a good relationship and you invest in relationships with people, that's an easy question to ask. So we need to respect and appreciate relationships. That's, that's the foundation. And I think everyone would appreciate that if you've got a good relationship or it's a mate, you can ask that a little bit more readily. If that relationship's not there... We need to be sure that asking, are you okay, is not uncomfortable. It feels risky. It feels like it takes courage sometimes. Yep. But being direct and straightforward also shows care. And if someone knows that you actually care for them, that goes a long way, even without them necessarily telling you that everything's going on. Just knowing that someone's invested or cares can help a person. So asking the question the ro- just directly to, to, to answer your question, are you okay? Is everything all right, mate? Do you need a hand? Can I help? What's been happening lately? They're, they're simple questions mm. that go a very long way, more than what most people actually recognise and appreciate. If they did realise the impact of a simple question like that, it might be asked more frequently, mm. which I think would be great. It's such the Aussie thing to say, g'day, mate, how you going? And it's almost like part of the... The original G'day Mate, it sort of rolls off a bit, but it needs to be a little bit more expressive than that. You do a lot of work with with companies and you go into mm. business areas and you talk to their their constituents, their employees. Yep. How does that, how do you shape that? You sh- I, I like to focus on systems and structures. When you go into those types of environments, and this is relevant for sport too, I think it's very important to think of systems and structures not just the people. Because, for example, you could, you could have, a, um, have a morning tea and you provide all the staff with, with cupcakes and other things and, and maybe movie, movie tickets and things like that. And that, that's fantastic. People feel valued and they appreciate those, those things. But if the systems and structures are not in place, they're still going to feel pressure and heat. Mm. You know, if you're overworking people drastically and you're not caring for them as individuals and that's not in, built into the systems and structures, then everything becomes difficult. So we often need to not just think about the person, we need to think about the systems and structures around them. Once you've got those in place, and those systems and structures, for example, could relate to the values that exist within the organisation and the behaviours and how they're followed up and uh, the the way that you check in on people and the support that you provide them and how you manage their workload and how you're you're flexible with them and how you listen to them and how you give them time. If they're built into systems and structures, I think it helps people. Once that foundation is there, then you can go in and start building skills and then you can check in on people. Uh, But it helps if you check in on someone and you've already done some education and discussion about resilience and uh, or can I help you out with that project at the moment? So there's not a lot of competitiveness. If there's collaboration within an organisation and people feel that collegial relationship, it actually makes everything feel a lot easier, even when there are challenges, which are inevitable. 
So systems and structures, as well as education, work well together. You mentioned the word collaboration as well. When you're supported by those people around you, it, it, it does become an easier task, an easier hurdle to, to step over. Just as sportsmen, when they finish a career, sports people, sorry, I should say, when they finish a career, they have to move on to something else and it can be a really down time for them. I would imagine in the business world, if somebody is moved into a new area, moved to a new job, is it's even, for, let's hope it doesn't happen, but people do, does happen to them, get shuffled sideways or mm. even a little bit sideways and step down-ish. Mm. How do you deal with somebody whose mentality is like, my world has changed. I, I'm no longer the sports person. I'm no longer the person in charge of this department. I'm no longer the person who's responsible in this area. I feel downgraded. What does that person, are there tricks? Are there, not tricks, that's a horrible word. Are there situations where they can move themselves emotionally and mentally into a better space? Yeah. Well, we need to appreciate that transition is a challenging time for most people. So that might be transition into a new organisation or a new team or a new city or town or a transition to a new relationship with a new coach or a new boss. And you just got to accept that. Well. The transition plays havoc with your brain. It can do, but but we need to appreciate that people in transition into, as we've described, or out of an organisation or into a new role or out of a sport where there's a lot of uh, energy and potentially, hopefully, structure and, uh, and support. Transition in or out is a challenging time. And if you recognise that transition is a time of vulnerability, then that can help you reflect on how you manage that transition. And there shouldn't be any surprises or you try to avoid surprises. Sometimes there are, but if you can minimise surprises, so the example you used about someone moved sideways or downgraded in a role, if that's a total shock and they're not supported in that transition, that will challenge them because... It's called a thinking trap, but you can personalise that. Thinking trap? A thinking trap is something where you'll make uh, an error in your thinking, which will lead to uh, your well-being diminishing. So you might might personalise something. So it might not be about you, but you feel it is all about you or it's all your fault. Mm -hmm. Or, Or there might be something in one scenario, let's use that work one, and we can use a sporting one as well. But uh, if, if you don't get promoted and you thought you should have been, then you, a generalising thinking trap would, would indicate that you feel like your whole life is bad. But that's not true. Your whole life might not be bad. You just didn't get that promotion. So how you compartmentalise those experiences becomes an important part of strategy for coping with it and maintaining your well-being. How you manage your thinking about it becomes important. How much of a surprise it is, it shouldn't, we're trying to make sure it's not a surprise, becomes important. And how you support it in the transition in or out of a role 
also becomes important. So there's a bunch of things that help people around that space. I'm Dermot Brereton and our guest is Anthony Clariker. This is The Conversations That Could for Are You OK? Brought to you by Dare Iced Coffee. Dare Iced Coffee, a proud partner of Are You OK? More with Anthony in a moment. Welcome back to The Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Welcome back to the conversations that could for Are You Okay? I'm Dermot Brereton, and our guest tonight is Anthony Clariker, sports psychologist and performance coach. What's your advice for someone listening who just needs to make some changes and they need to get motivated to actually make that change? Well, I think being clear on your direction, being strategic, you know, sometimes people fall into the path that they end up on. But if you're strategic, you feel like you've got a bit of control on it. And I suppose that strategy means thinking about the purpose that you're doing something, what's what you're passionate about, if you can if you can manage your way into something that, that you're passionate about. That's a great call, strategic about the path. You've got to be strategic because, you know, and that, you do that by setting go- setting goals and where do I want to go? What do I want to be? What's going to, what's going to fill my cup? Is it going to be income? Is it going to be relationships? Is it going to be the industry or field I work in? You know, is it going to be the, the flexibility I've got? So I've got time for other things. You've, you've got to recognize that within yourself. And then as best as possible, we can't, you can't always control all those things, of course, right? I get that. But if you can be somewhat strategic about what's important to you, the direction you want to go in, and then you set your goals around that, that can help. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take you back to the book because I'm fascinated with a lot of these characters and, and how they apply themselves and mm-hmm. and what they've used in terms of, you, you call it mindset. <laughs> I call it little tricks on your mind. Yep. <laughs> okay. Uh, Yusuf Abdi from Athletics, the athletic track and field. Yusuf Abdi. Now, he's a, he's a fascinating story because Yusuf grew up in Algeria and um, he – he is all about passion, purpose, and meaning. And he, he absolutely identified a bigger meaning from his sport at a young age than just competing. Uh, I don't understand what's... I'll give, okay. you an, I'll give you an example. And this, this, I'll tell you a bit about the story in the book, which people can read about. But he, he as a, as a uh, junior, got selected onto his national team for the Youth Olympics, which happened to be in Sydney. So he came across and he competed for his, uh, for his country and he even actually got entered in the wrong event accidentally by the officials <laughs> and ended up somewhere down the back last because it wasn't his event. Yeah, no. yeah. And he coped with that all right and he goes back to his home country and when he got back, being a young fellow, let's say roughly, I think if I recall correctly, he's about 18, and he got a letter that he got conscripted into the army, which he didn't want to be a fighter. He didn't appreciate war. He didn't want to get involved in those sorts of activities. He thought he was going to get called to a training camp for athletes, a bit like our Australian Institute of Sport. Yeah. So he had a very short window of time to think about what to do. And because he had a visa for Australia to compete at the Youth Olympics, he said to his parents in his native language, because he didn't speak English, I can't go and be a soldier. I want to be an athlete. And my only avenue to be an athlete is to get to Australia with this visa. His parents said, well, you don't speak English. You don't know the country. We don't know anybody there. You can't go. 
and, and I'm imagining they weren't exactly flush with with finances to get him there. They had no money. There's, so, a, few, there's a few obstacles in, in use of away then. His passion and purpose was so high, he convinced his parents over a short period of time to find the money from different people and I suppose their life savings. Yep. And he gets to Australia and he gets to Sydney with a very small amount of money in his pocket. And the only place he knows is the hotel that they stayed at for the Youth Olympics. So he goes there for the first night that he arrives, doesn't caught a cab from the airport and told them the hotel. Um, and he realises it's almost all of the money he's got in his pocket for Everything. one night. It's <laughs> his entire saving. That he brings to Australia. And he realises he's not going to be able to train to be an athlete because he's got no money and he's got nowhere to live. So he spends a year um, uh, at a supermarket doing different odd jobs, picking up trolleys, which he said suited him perfectly because he couldn't talk to anyone anyway. And he even at times had to sleep rough in Sydney without shelter. And he met people that supported him along the journey. And he says all of it, he never, ever lost or forgot the reason he came to Australia was to be an athlete. So he ultimately got to a training group, started training again, and eventually became a competitor and then went really well as a runner and missed out on selection to get qualified for, for an Olympics as an athlete. So he had, to, he had another hurdle and he eventually ended up changing events uh, to a steeplechase. And he said he chose the steeplechase because it reflected his life of jumping hurdle over hurdle. And he ended up making the Olympics for Australia in the steeplechase. And he says what, what he achieved wasn't just his dream of being an athlete. He achieved having a life that was better than the life in his old country. Yeah. And he said he, under, he still has relationships with his family and friends there, he says, but he's got a life that's totally different than theirs. And that's what his sport enabled him to have. And he never forgot that. That, that drove him all the way along a decade of chasing that goal. What a story. Uh, last one before we let you go, David Anderson, basketball yeah, Dave, Dave's Dave's an amazing story because he, he went to four Olympics and um, he talks a lot about culture and leadership, which is really insightful because, you know, he, he went to four Olympics and he'd retired and the next Olympics that Australia went to, you know, Paddy Mills leads the team to win the, win the bronze medal. <laughs> yeah. And what he tells is the story how the culture – for achieving that was set many years before where they got together as a group and said, every Olympics we go to, we're going to bond, we're going to create some solidarity and we're going to build a culture, an Australian culture in our basketball team where we strive for a medal. And he says that carried forward right through, which is when you listen to Paddy Mills' really moving and remarkable speech when when they win the medal are ah, post-Tokyo Olympics. And he talks about this is for all the people along the journey. Yeah. That's that's what Dave was talking about. And as a leader, Dave talks about himself as being the glue guy because he talks about introversion, extroversion, and you don't need to be an extrovert to be a leader. But every he played in multiple countries. He played in the NBA. He played all over Europe. And he says he, and he had huge success. He won over 20 championships, which is incredible. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. And... Uh, he says, the, I asked, how'd you do that, mate? He said, the way I did it was I, I gave myself this label of the glue guy. 
And everywhere I went, I tried to bring people together. And I just loved that description. The glue guy. He's in France, he's in Turkey, he's in Moscow, he's in Spain. He played in all of those countries and he won championships in all of those countries, as well as here in Australia in the NBL with Melbourne United. So being the glue guy, said he said inside the locker room, he'd check in on people. Are you okay? Yeah. You, you, we can learn and grow from our performance. We, we can work together, mate. So he and gave that, himself a role other than just being a sport player. Absolutely. And he's been captain, but he said whether he was in a leadership role or not, he still put that upon himself. He was still the glue guy. He's still <laughs> the glue guy. And I think that's a really important message for people. You don't need to be extroverted. You don't need to be in a le- an official leadership position. Anybody can check in on others and help them not just with their performance, but personally and help each other to gel. And that's that's going to ultimately lead to success. I have a terrible habit of saying that'll be the last question. <laughs> I've got one more. Please tell me about Liz Watson. Fascinating character. Liz Watson, captain of the Australian Diamonds, uh, the netball team, and coming up to the Commonwealth Games will follow her progress and, and the Diamonds, you know, closely yep. for yep. sure because it's, it's a great squad and um, they're great role models for, for a lot of athletes. Liz Watson, Liz Watson talks about her evolution to being the captain for Australia, which is really fascinating because she had great role models and she listened. What, what I picked up from her, she didn't talk about this, but she seemed to me to be very coachable, very open-minded. She was listening and learning from people when she joined the Vixens uh, from senior players and people in leadership roles. She was absorbing that information constantly. She never thought, I've made it. She, she asked a lot of questions and she talks about that. I asked question after question to the point where it's probably annoying <laughs> until she got feedback from people that's saying, geez, we love your questions because it created an energy. Yes. So you've got, you got to be a help seeker. That's really important. Don't, don't just ask, are you okay? We've got to put it on people to help seek too. Anyway, she talks about trust and relationships as being really important foundations for her leadership and the legacy that she's trying to create as the captain for the, for the Diamonds. And she also talks about how leadership is everyone's responsibility, whether you're in a role or not, and how she tries to empower others. And the way she goes about it, it's pretty impressive. Anthony, you've been wonderful to chat to. I hope we've all learned a little bit out of it. And I urge people to go out and grab a copy. You can buy it on ebooks too, I think. You, yeah, think, it's yeah. online. It's yeah. online and there's Kindle of it, hard copy. That's that's the one for me. It's easier for somebody else telling it to <laughs> me. <laughs> the Performance Mindset, Seven Steps to Success in Sport and Life. Anthony Clarica, thank you. Thank you, Dermot. If you've enjoyed this episode, the conversations that could for Are You OK? and you'd like to share it with a friend or access the resources in our show notes, subscribe to the podcast of The Conversations That Could, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Dermot Brereton, and we'll be back next week. And remember, when your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask Are You OK? Thanks for listening. 